Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I want to draw your attention then in preparation for the table and celebrating the Lord Jesus in his death. Draw your attention to Luke 23. And verse 46. I need not describe the context. You know it very well. Our text says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm not sure that there is a more solemn moment in life than the moment when life comes to an end. For most people, death is a very fearful thing. And death terrifies people, you know. Death chills the hearts of people. Shakespeare wrote... To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. There's the problem with dying, is you may dream. We don't know what's going to happen after we die. If we did, and it was good, we're not so afraid, but... To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. There's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? Who knows what's going to happen? It may be horrific. And so, people are frightened. Now, our text speaks of the moment of death, but it's not the kind of death we've been thinking about the kind of terrifying prospect I've been trying to describe and that Shakespeare articulates. Because this death here is a, it's a moment of peace. It's a moment of contentment. It's a moment of, of triumph. And these words that are recorded on a rather extraordinary deathbed These are words that are born of faith in a loving Father. And so Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. From this uh, very sobering text, I want to set before you three points. The first is that Jesus is in control. We'll start right there. Jesus is in control. That's the first thing I want to emphasize to you from this text. Usually, when you stand beside a deathbed, you are profoundly impressed with the utter helplessness of that person, uh, that uh, man or that woman who is dying, or, for that matter, that child. You are impressed with the sheer, unmitigated weakness of the person who is dying. They are dying, and 
and strength is gone. Sometimes they can't even lift a hand. Strength is gone and life is, is slipping away, inexorably slipping away. And they get weaker and weaker. So that's the impression that is so profound when you stand before a deathbed. When you stand before the cross, however, when you gaze upon the cross with eyes of faith, well, then you're impressed not with the weakness but with the power. You look with unbelieving eyes and weakness is all you see. But when you look with eyes of faith, then you're impressed with the power. Then you're impressed with the control that this Jesus has. And you're, con com you're confronted uh, with nothing less than sovereignty when you turn your eyes upon Jesus on the cross. And you begin to understand then why sometimes we sing, Jesus, we adore Thee upon the cross, our King. You'd think that that kind of juxtaposition just doesn't make any sense. Jesus King upon the cross, but it does. It's one of the glorious things about the Christian faith. So what I'm saying to you this morning, first of all from this text, is that Jesus is in control. He's in absolute control of the situation. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit into your hands. I commit my spirit into your hands. Who's at work here? Well, Jesus is at work. Jesus is in control. The word commit means to, to place in someone's charge. I commit my spirit into your hands, my beloved Father. Jesus is at work, and Jesus is in control, and he places the immaterial part of himself into the charge of his Father. He dismisses his spirit, and commits it to his Father. Dr. Riken, from, uh, who was uh, pastor of um, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, said, none of us can die this way. It is possible for us to commit suicide, to use some external means to snuff out our life. We can poison ourselves, shoot ourselves with a gun, or do something else that will extinguish our lives, but we cannot simply dismiss our spirits as Jesus did. He dismisses his spirit. He commits his spirit into the hands of his Father. We are told in John chapter 10, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. If you look with unbelieving eyes on this scene, you think, yes, of course, someone took his life from him. But when you look with believing eyes, when you trust what Jesus said, when you realize God's explanation of the matter, you know that Jesus lays down his life. Nobody can take it from him. He's in complete control. So when he dies now, this is the Lord Jesus in control. He dismisses his spirit. He commits his spirit into the hands of his Father. He is laying down his life. He can take it again, and he will, and he can lay it down, and he does. 
Jesus is in control. And this picture of him, this image of him as in complete control in this situation is consistent with what the Bible says about Jesus throughout his life on this earth, throughout his time here in our world. He is always in complete control. He is always in charge of the situation. He always has his hand on every detail. You read, for instance, in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Here we are at the beginning of his ministry, and people are starting to get, well, they're getting a little upset with him. He's saying things and claiming things that are troubling to them, and so they try to lay their hands upon him. They want to throw him off a cliff, and the Bible says that he simply walked through their midst. Who's in control? This this murderous mob that wants to destroy Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? Absolutely not. He's in control. And so he simply walks through their midst. He simply moves past them and by them, and they cannot touch him. He's always in complete control. We read in Mark chapter 4, when a storm threatens to destroy His disciples and the disciples cry, Lord, we are perishing. You need to do something. Oh, their lack of faith. They forget that he's in complete control. And the storm's not in control. And the waves are not in control. Jesus is in complete control. So he rises from his pillow and he addresses the storm and he speaks to the waves and he tells the wind to cease, and the wind ceases, and the waves are calm, and the sea is quiet, and his people are safe. Why is that? Because because he's in control, and they marvel, and they ask, well, who is this? But even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, he's, he's Jesus. He's the Son of the living God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one who is in absolute control at every point of his life and ministry. Oh, you can trust him, you see. Look at the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 19. And what do you see there? Well, he he speaks with kingly authority. You and I, we ask for this and we plead for that and we negotiate for the other. But Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must stay at your house today. That's kingly authority. He issues a command, he gives a decree, and it must be so. Why is that? Well, he's in control. He bows to no one. There's only one on the throne of the universe. That's the triune God and Jesus, the second person of that trinity. And so he speaks and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And Zacchaeus comes down quickly. And Jesus stays at his house. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is in control. And he does what he deems right. And he fulfills in this world his holy will. He's in control. And then you come to John 18 and And these religious leaders, they begin to flex their muscles, or at least they try. Now we're going to arrest him, they say. But Jesus reminds them in a not-too-subtle way that he's in control. Who are you looking for, Jesus says. 
Jesus of Nazareth, they say. I am, he says. We read, I am he. But really it's, I am. And you know the significance of that. And what happens then? Well, they are knocked back, as it were. They fall back and they fall to the ground. Why is that? Because the one who is in absolute control is just reminding them. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to die. He's set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem and nothing could stop him, not even the cajoling of, of Peter at the behest of the devil. Nothing's going to stop him. He's going to die. But he says, I am. And they're knocked back just so they know that if they take him, it's because he's going willingly. Not because they have any power over him, for they do not. Pilate thinks he's in control. Pilate thinks he has power. But Jesus reminds him in John 19, you could have no power against me unless it had been given to you from above. You think you're in control. You think my life hangs in the balance depending upon your will. You think you can do whatever you want with me, but you cannot. Whatever authority you have, it's been given to you. And if it wasn't given to you, you could do nothing at all. Who's in control? It's the Lord Jesus. And so on the cross, as he dies, is he being crushed? Is he a victim? Absolutely not. He's in complete control. I commit my spirit to the Father. I lay down my life. How do we respond to this? Well, well, we respond with praise. We respond with praise. And we praise Him for His greatness. We praise Him because He's astonishing. Because He's astounding. Because He's amazing. Because there's no one else like Him. Let me risk your wrath and give you another Shakespeare quote, shall I? This is from Julius Caesar. Cassius says to Brutus, you remember them? Cassius says to Brutus, he's talking about Caesar, and he says, Why, man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus. And we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Oh, this Caesar, he says, what a great man. He's a colossus. We're just little men. He's great man standing there with these massive legs and we're just running around. And of course, that's just not true when it comes to men because those very men, Cassius and Brutus, in just a little bit, they're going to kill that Caesar. He's going to lay there, bleeding out. Now, Colossus, that's a word that fits only one. Only one man who's ever walked the face of the earth can aptly be described as a Colossus. And that's Jesus. In all of these various details, in all of the situations of his life, frankly, in all the situations of all our lives, he's in absolute control. 
Nobody can take him and hang him on a cross unless he goes there willingly. He's planned that, in fact. And as they go about fulfilling their own wicked desires and capture him and crucify him, they do it under the control of the living God, under the control of the one who himself is being crucified. What a great being is Jesus. And so we praise him for that. We praise him simply for who he is. We praise him not at this point for what he does for us, but we praise him for who he is, for how great he is. But then we also praise him for his grace. We praise him for his greatness, and we praise him for his grace. Because why does he do this? Why does he allow this? Why does he go willingly? Why does he let these, these weak, sinful creatures arrest him and beat him and persecute him and pound thorns into his head and nails into his hands and into his feet. Why does he do that? Well, you know. You know it's because of you. It's, it's for you. It's to rescue you. It's to help you. It's to save you. It's to forgive you. It's all about rescuing sinners like you. That's grace, you see. Doesn't have to do it. Astonishing that he would do it. It's because of love that he does do it. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend, and that's what he's doing. When he, when he does this, this, this sovereign on the cross, what an astonishing thing. And he's there because of you. He's there to save you. Yes, Jesus is in control. Well, that's the first point I want to draw to your attention. The second is also astonishing. Jesus and the Father. Jesus and the Father. Jesus in control. That's marvelous. Jesus and the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Talking to his Father. So, just ignore them. Let them play. It's great to see that their parents brought them to church, isn't it? Isn't that just a wonderful thing? These kids have had the privilege of hearing the gospel today. So let them, let them run around and, and shout. God bless his word to them. Jesus and the Father. My point here hangs on two words. First, the word forsaken. Because you remember... Moments before this moment, he was forsaken. Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not my father at that point, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we understand that moment. <clears throat> Luther says, God, forsaken of God, who can understand it? And we understand why he says that, because it's, I mean, it's truly astonishing. It's truly mind-boggling. But thank God we, it's been explained to us in some measure in the Scriptures, and, and so we do understand something of it. And we know that that forsakenness, we know that that's the moment when Jesus 
drinks the cup of God's wrath. He takes the cup of God's wrath and drinks that bitter mixture to its very dregs. We know that that's the moment when the wrath of God is being poured out upon him. We know that that's the moment when he's made sin for us. We know that that's the moment when propitiation takes place and Jesus bears in his own body our sin and suffers in our own place the wrath of God that we deserved, that we had earned. And he takes that upon himself. And we know that that's the moment when, well, it's the moment we sing about how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. So forsaken. Moments before this. Forsaken. But now, those hours have passed, and now the darkness is gone. And now the Father, well, his face is no longer turned away. And so Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we come to the second word. It's, the first is forsaken. How astonishing is that? And the second word is Father. How glorious is that? And this must have been a precious word to the Lord Jesus. He must have loved to use the word Father, to speak of God as His Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus 17 times talks about His Father. And in what we call the Upper Room Discourse, John 14 to 16, this is Thursday night before Good Friday. This is Jesus with his disciples and giving them teaching before he dies and before he goes away. And he speaks of God in this way. Forty-five times he calls him Father. Forty-five times in that little span of time he speaks of the Father. Six times in John 17, his prayer before the cross speaks of the Father. How precious that word must be to him who throughout all eternity has shared glory and sweet and perfect fellowship with his Father. And so in life, he commits himself to doing the Father's work. And in death, he commits himself into the Father's hand. Always the Father. Well, there's a lesson here for us, you see. And the, les the lesson is, is stirring and astonishing and wonderful. The lesson is this. See the triune God at work to save you. The triune God at work to save you. What's happening here is the Father and the Son and the Spirit working in perfect harmony to save your soul. The Father and the Son and the Spirit working in perfect harmony in an extraordinary act to make you safe and keep you safe forever. To lift you up 
out of the miry clay and to set your feet upon a rock and to take you to his glory. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in perfect harmony to make you one of theirs. To make you one of God's. And so the Father gives the Son. He's there because the Father gave sent him and commissioned him to do that. How deep the Father's love for us that he should give his only Son and make a wretch his treasure. The Father gave him at Bethlehem and the Father gave him at Calvary. And he's there because the Father sends him. Such is the Father's love for you. But that's the Father at work to save you. And then we also know that the Son lays down his life. Paul will later say, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He does this willingly. No arm behind the back for Jesus. No being forced into it and being cornered by some cajoling. No, he goes willingly and he goes freely and he goes with his heart full of love for you and for me. It's the Son doing this. You say it's the Father doing this. Yes, it is. And it's the Son doing this. And he goes and he saves you. Oh, it's the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But it's also the Spirit. The Spirit enables Jesus Oh, he had strength of his own, but he goes enabled by the Spirit. And Hebrews tells us that Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered up himself without spot to God. And the Spirit is intimately involved in this. At the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit comes upon him and begins to strengthen him and enable him and equips him for his ministry. And it's the Spirit who's there at the end, enabling him and equipping him to lay down his life for us all. And so, extraordinarily, the Father and the Son and the Spirit working in mysterious and marvelous harmony to save us. And so the, the Son commits His Spirit to the Father, all the while strengthened by the Spirit. Extraordinary to think also that even when He was forsaken, the Father loved Him. John 10, 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, and such is the extraordinary and inexplicable and, and mysterious harmony in the Blessed Trinity. Even as the Father pours out His wrath upon His Son, He loves His Son, because it is His Son who is giving Himself up, enabled by the Spirit to accomplish this great work of redemption, of which we are the recipients, the blessed People of God, the redeemed community of the Lord Jesus. How absolutely stunning then to think about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together to save us. And if that doesn't thrill your heart, oh, you're dead in sin. That's the second thing. Jesus and his people. This is the third point. Jesus and his people. Jesus is in control. And then we think about Jesus and his Father. 
And lastly, thirdly, we think about Jesus and His people. We read in Numbers 23, verse 10, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like His. I've often prayed that, that God would let me die the death of the righteous. I've seen, I've seen a number of Christians die, and the dying process, it's the dying process, you know, that's so difficult. Some, some people face very difficult circumstances in that. But the Bible says, let me die the death of the righteous. We want to die the death of the righteous. We want to honor God and glorify God and be shining witnesses through it all. And the wonderful thing is that because of what Jesus did and because of His grace to us, we can die as Jesus did. Not redemptively, of course, not saving people, but... We die the death of the righteous. We can lay on the sickbed. You can lie down on a bed knowing that you're never going to get up. But knowing, also being absolutely convinced that you're safe in the hands of God, committing yourself into the hands of your Father, you know you're okay. We're not afraid of death, Christians. We need not be. Christian people people who have trusted Christ, people who are forgiven. They're covered by the blood, aren't they? They're clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. We can pray the same prayer. We can have the same expectation that we're safe in the hands of God. We'll close our eyes in death and open our eyes in glory. We can pray the same prayer, Lord, receive my spirit. We're not doing it we're not committing ourselves into God's hands sovereignly the way Jesus. We're not dismissing our spirit as the one who has life in himself did. Of course, no, the Lord Jesus is absolutely unique. But we can entrust ourselves to God at the moment of our dying and the moment of our death. We entrust ourselves to God as he did. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, said Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And then down through the years, Christians have done the same thing. And Wesley was right, Christians really die well because they can do this. They can say, Father, receive my spirit. Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. We can do this. Luther on his deathbed repeated this prayer three times over. Into your hands I commend my spirit. You have redeemed me, O God of truth. Imagine being able to die like that. Imagine being convinced at that moment, which terrifies everybody else. At that moment, you know how utterly safe you are. Absolutely convinced. The only thing that lies ahead for me now is glory. How astonishing to know that you are a heartbeat away from seeing him and from being absolutely, without qualification, happy. Amazing. Roland Hill, if you've never heard of him, you'd love to read about him. He was a revival preacher, and he died repeating these words, 
And when I'm to die, receive me, I'll cry, for Jesus has loved me, I cannot tell why. Imagine it. Imagine that's how you're dying. Oh, I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay. This body is dying, but oh, and when I die, receive me, I'll cry, for Jesus has loved me, I cannot tell why. We can't explain it, ah, but we're going to enjoy it. We're safe. Now, would you like to die well? Would you, would you like to die well? You say, well, pfft, I'm not thinking about death because I got, I got decades. I got decades before I have to think about it. Maybe you're a child or a young person. You think, oh, I got a lot of time. I'm not even 30. <laughs> I mean, when you're 30, well, maybe yeah, then you think, no. Or maybe you're middle-aged and you think, oh, I got a good 40 years or so. And if I take care of myself, maybe 50. Have some vitamins. But you are, I'm not being melodramatic here. You're a breath away. Like you're just a breath away. You are one breath away from death. I know, a, I know a young man, he's, he's 18 years old, he's having to think about death. He's got a diagnosis, and uh, they're going to see, I think on Tuesday, what they're going to do. And the prognosis, you know, is really good. Thank the Lord. You don't know this young man. The prognosis is really good, but he's thinking about it. You know, he's thinking about it. He's 18. You're a moment away. You want to be sure you're going to die well. How are you going to be sure to, to die well? well? First of all, you must be in Christ. You must be in Christ. Otherwise, there's no hope that the Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to God except through Him. And so if you're not in Him, you won't die well. And it won't be well with you afterwards. If you're in Christ, you're safe in the hands of a Father. If you're outside of Christ, you're in the hands of an angry judge. Or you'll be in the hands of God one way or the other when you die. You say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you tell that to God that you don't believe in Him. See what happens. No, you... You'll be in his hands one way or the other. And if you're in Christ, you'll go with him to heaven. And if you're not in Christ, he'll send you away to hell. Those are the two stark options that are set before men and women and young people and children. Death will come, and death will divide, and we'll not be sitting together like this. And if there are any non-Christians, they will not be amongst the people of God as they are today. They will be separated. You will be separated and sent off into the darkness. 
So you have to make sure that you're a Christian. You have to make sure that you're safe. And there's only one place to be safe, and that's in Jesus. And every week, every week you're told, run to Jesus. Every week you're told, believe in the Lord Jesus. Every day people are praying for you that you'll be safe in Jesus. So believe in him today and trust yourself to him. And then you're safe. And if you die tonight, if you die tomorrow, if you die 60 years down the line, you go straight to heaven. I know what it's like to get up every day and know that I'm all right. And know that if I die today, I'll go straight to heaven. Many of us here, so many of us, we know what that's like. And I tell you, it's glorious. It's wonderful. So you want to die well? Be sure to be in Christ. Make sure you're a Christian, a real Christian. And secondly, you must be in the Word. Now I'm talking to Christians, because Christians, we want to die well. We want to be good witnesses. We want to be those who die in such a way that we encourage other Christians. And, and we're instructive for their spiritual lives, and we're a blessing. And we know Christians who died well. We know Christians where, you know, we went to visit them as they were dying, and we walked away encouraged. We walked away with a smile on our face and tears in our eyes. Why is that? Because they were, they were dying well. And I'll give you a clue as to, as to how to die well. And Jesus shows us how to die well. One of the ways is to be in the Word. Some Christians, when they come to die, it's difficult. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that Christian, well, he struggled. The, the waves of the Jordan threatened to overwhelm him, and he couldn't touch bottom. But hopeful, hopeful was, well, he was hopeful. He was just full of hope and courage and strength, and he just made his way across all fine. But sometimes we, we struggle. This can help. Be in the Word. It's interesting to note here that the Lord Jesus, at least three of his seven sayings on the cross were quotations from the Scriptures. Forsaken is from Psalm 22. Um, thirsty is from Psalm 69. Finished is perhaps from Psalm 22 as well. And, and then, of course, we read this in Psalm 31. Verse 5, we read this. Well, you want to make sure that um, you know, the Word is in your heart, and that you're familiar with the Scriptures, and you're thinking about the things of God and... and uh, Oh, the wonderful comforts. They've strengthened you and they've equipped you. And you know that you're safe in the hands of your Father. And you know that you're headed into the kingdom of your Father. Spurgeon says there was an old Christian lady who he said, um, he said she died in the night. But they found... Uh, by her bedside, a poem that he says she wrote. She probably wrote perhaps that night. 
This is it. It's not a great poem, but it's a great truth. And it says this. It says, since Jesus is mine, I'll not fear undressing, but gladly put off these garments of clay. To die in the Lord is a covenant blessing, since Jesus to glory through death led the way. So we're, we're going to die like that if you're a Christian. Some of you, are, you know, you think you're closer than other people here because you're older. But truth be told, who knows? I might drop dead right before your eyes. Yeah, he said, don't be silly. I'm not. Like, just like that, it could be gone. You should go through life like that, knowing just like that, you can be gone. And if you're a Christian, just like that, you're in heaven. You're looking forward to lunch? Just like that, you're at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I'm not trying to be silly. That's the fabulous, glorious truth. I mean, think about it today. You're a heartbeat from heaven. You're a heartbeat from heaven. You're a heartbeat from heaven. And then it's glory. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we're just astonished at how good you are to us, and we're amazed at how glorious your Son is. Receive our thanks and our praise, our Father, and help us, uh, help us to die well, each and every one of us who is a Christian, and work wonderfully in those who are not believers so that they too might be safe in Christ. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to celebrate the table. Make sure you have uh, the elements. Um, make sure you, if you don't have it, you can get it during the, the next hymn. And um, if you're a believer, then we, oh, we welcome you to, uh, to uh, partake with us. And if you're not, oh, we pray that you become a Christian right away. And uh, make sure you're safe in the Lord Jesus as you observe this. But first we'll sing 241 in hymns of the faith. 241, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress.